I'm a real example of why fair sentencing is needed. I didn't say I didn't need to go to prison, but I didn't need to spend 85 years of my life in prison to make a change. I never deny anybody's ability to change. It can be 10 years, it may take 15 years, but there needs to be in our justice system an evaluation to really see and foster that change in individuals. There are so many people in prison that probably will never get a chance to see the streets ever again or for a long period of time that have made that change. I understand there's a balance between paying your debt to society, but it's also you have to do righteous. You have to be righteous, and righteous is doing what's for the better good. Would it be more better for them to be in prison wasting taxpayers' dollars than to be out here doing and being on the front lines with me and Marlon doing what we're doing? And you have some guys that have been locked up 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 30 years, that they would be better served getting out, being on the front lines and trying to correct some of the wrongs that they did on society other than just for some reason of just letting them rot in prison. And I think if you're thinking about the greater good, it would make way more sense. It would be way more effective into being changing the culture of not just criminality, reentry, the justice system, housing, all of those things can be addressed if we look at the way that we sentence people and the way that we release them. That's the voice of Richard Lovett, who prefers to go by the name Reality Allah, who is the reentry coordinator for Ready Chicago and a board member of the Fully Free Campaign of Heartland Alliance. Right up front, as you wonder whether you should invest an hour of your time listening to this episode, let me say that from a public safety policy standpoint, this is one of the most important conversations we've published so far. Please listen to it all. You will gain critical understanding and be a better informed citizen and voter. After Reality was originally sentenced to serve 85 years in Illinois State Prison, that sentence was later reduced due to the reversal of one of his convictions on appeal. So he ended up spending 22 years in prison. His story, experience, and his voice regarding lessons learned and wisdom gained are important. Before getting into that, here's some more excerpts to give you a taste of what's ahead. By the time I was 11, I was involved in all type of street criminal activity. You got to think 11 or have to prove themselves. So I was carrying guns and knives to school. I was trying to do everything that the teenage kids was doing. And I got arrested and sent to juvenile hall for a weekend. And as you can imagine, my mother was very distraught and upset and disappointed in me. But that was kind of like my trajectory into crime. I went to juvenile hall. I met other gang members, exchanged numbers, and I came home and got up with some of them. Prison is like a microcosm of the streets. And so the same elements are in there. For a lot of people that actually joined gangs, they felt invisible, not only in their own families, but in their communities and society as a whole. They felt like they didn't have a voice. They felt like the community didn't really honor who they was. And so a lot of these zip codes, if you look into the zip codes that the gang cultures eventually became really noticeable in, you find similarities and disinvestment in those communities, which could make someone feel invisible. Most drug dealers that do sell drugs for a long time, they're almost equivalent as the people that use drugs. It eventually becomes an addiction. And the lifestyle choices that you make are similar to the ones that people make that do drugs. They don't care about money no more. They care about getting up at the thrill as the, th the high that you get and the dopamine that's released from bagging the drugs, from selling the drugs, from running a, a drug empire or a drug operation. Um, and so it's not about the money because if, if it was just about money, you'll find ways to save money, you'll find ways to invest, you'll find other ways outside of selling drugs if you were just about money. But most mid-level drug dealers can make a probably $50,000 a week times that by 52 weeks. That's a lot of money. That's most that's more money than most people were making that had college degrees, right? And so wealthy, young, rich African-American men and during the crack epidemic and, and other times, they didn't have no skills to, to really 
transfer over. They didn't have any transferable skills at the time to go into something legit or to save money. They looked at money just as a means to an end. They spent it fast and made it fast. It's similarly to the way that someone does drugs. It's not, it does, after a while, it don't become about the money. It comes about the thrill that you get of doing something illegal, running an empire, and things of that nature. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Reality Allah. Reality, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And welcome also again to Marlon Chamberlain, the Fully Free Campaign Manager, who's joining us as guest co-host. Thanks for having me again, Dave. Reality, you have an interesting story to tell, and we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. And you also have learned a lot of things along your journey that we'd like to hear about as well. Lessons learned from lived experience. We'd like to hear about your life before you went to prison and what led you to go to prison. We'd like to hear about your experience in prison and your experience after release from prison as you re-entered community life. And most importantly of those stories, we want to hear about who you are today, what you've made of yourself, what you're doing with your life, what you're doing with the Fully Free Campaign, and what you're doing with Ready Chicago. We'd like to learn a little more about those programs. But before we understand what you're doing today, it's, it's really helpful to understand how you got here. You know, what, what was the path that led to this? So let's talk about the backstory, so to speak. Tell us about your life before prison and what led to some of these early experiences getting crossways with the law. Yeah, thank you again, Dave, for having me, and thanks, Marlon, for co-hosting. I had a normal childhood, um, as normal as you can get on the south side of Chicago. I was raised by a single mother, but my father, he was he was involved. They just wasn't together. He lived out of town uh, most of my childhood, but he definitely was involved. I'm the youngest of five kids. My older siblings are biracial. My mother married a white man in the 60s. I already told her she was courageous for that, living on the south side of Chicago. So I was kind of like the black sheep, literally and figuratively, uh, I guess, um, growing up. My next to youngest sibling was 11 years older than me. So I often had to find other kids to play with, uh, to relate to. So I kind of didn't, in my household, I didn't really have anybody I could relate to. My mother was working, trying to put a roof over our head and provide a life for us. So that was kind of like my introduction to the streets. So when I was nine and 10, most of my siblings had moved out or was dating and working and things of that nature. So I spent a lot of time by myself and eventually just start hanging out with around like the guys on the corner or the guys at the corner store. And for some reason or another, I found that lifestyle fascinating. I found that the fast paced life, the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they interacted in the community, I just found that lifestyle fascinating. It was nothing like the Boy Scouts or after church programs that my mother tried to expose me to. So, and I was very risk averse. I was the type of person that loved to take risks. So I would sneak out at night and, and hang around these these elements. And that was kind of like my introduction into the street culture and gang culture and eventually drug culture. So very quickly I got caught up in it. So by the time I was 10, I was like a face of the neighborhood. People were used to seeing me around. Most 10 year olds can't hang around adults at 11, 12 at night. And so it was, it was, I was the exception of the rule and I was persistent. I always, even when I tried to get, they send me home and tell me to get away or something is about to happen. I would go right, I'd be right back out. I'd just be across the street or something like that. And they'd be like, you still over here? I'm like, yeah. So eventually they was like, hey, he gonna hang out with us regardless. 
and they start kind of protecting me as like the baby of the neighborhood and and that was like my my really introduction into the sausage making process if you will of of gang culture and street culture hanging around these high level gang members and and uh, highly respected drug dealers so your persistence led them to kind of adopt you, I gather. Yeah, it was kind of more of an adoption because I think at the time the gangs had a policy that you couldn't join if you was 10 or 11. So it was kind of like by proxy, like, hey, you just hanging out with us. And and I got a lot of respect as a result. I didn't have to come in the the front door, as you uh, as they say, like, and to, to eventually I did, but it, I didn't have to do a lot of the things that let's say a 15 year old would have to do to get in the, to get in the gang. Now you mentioned two words there. You mentioned protection and you mentioned respect. Yeah. So those things were really synonymous with one another. Of course, joining the gang, you would be protected from other neighborhoods, other gang members, and even just any, anything that could cause you danger. It was protection was more like even support. You know, I, I remember times where I, I would ditch school and they would say, hey, we go back to school. I was like, well, no, this 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 person is bothering me. And they will literally walk me to school and 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 say, you know, don't bother him. Let him let him get his education. And to the gang's credit, they used to encourage all young kids back then to go in school, don't ditch. And I think it was because they had a dual interest at that time of not having a bunch of juvenile adolescents being delinquent from school and having all of the, the, the truancy officers and eventually the police come to the neighborhoods looking for these kids and they could run a drug operation without disturbance. Well, these street organizations do seem to have two sides to them. One side is the social side and that includes mutual protection, but also development of people. And then the other side is the uh, criminal enterprise. And it generates income for the organization and also the individuals in the organization. Definitely. And my mother was a um, CPS school teacher um, all my life. And so education was really big in our household. And my mother was a research genius, and she always taught me like to research anything that come in front of my eyes. And so even with the gang culture, I kind of like researched every gang in Chicago, and I studied the gangs around my house. I studied my gang actually was the, the organization that I eventually became involved in was actually the smallest in numbers. So me being risk averse at the time and always rooting for the underdog, I was like, that's what I want to be with. I'm, I'm not going to get with the popular guys. I'm going to go get with these group of black sheep that I can relate to. And and maybe I have more of an influence there because I felt like I was already invisible in a, in a household full of five. I felt like if I got with a smaller group of guys that I could probably make more influence and be more visible with the smaller group of guys if I joined one of the larger organizations. I found that to be true for a lot of people that actually joined gangs. They felt invisible, not only in their own families, but in their communities and society as a whole. They felt like they didn't have a voice. They felt like the community didn't really honor who they was. And so a lot of these zip codes, if you look into the zip codes that the gang cultures eventually became really noticeable in, you find similarities in disinvestment and those communities, which could make someone feel invisible. So you didn't want to get lost in the crowd, even in a, a street organization, a gang that was designed to empower you. Right, exactly. And so by the time I was 11, I was involved in all type of street criminal activity. You got to think 11 or I have to prove themselves. So I was carrying guns and knives to school. I was trying to do everything that the teenage kids was doing. And I got arrested and sent to juvenile hall for a weekend. And as you can imagine, my mother was very distraught and upset and disappointed in me. But that was kind of like my trajectory into crime. I went to juvenile hall. I met other gang members, exchanged numbers, and I came home and got up with some of them. And some of them I still friends with to this day. Prison is like a microcosm um, of the streets. And so the same elements are in there. So... 
11 years old, I came home and I was determined to be the best son and gang member. So I kind of lived a dual life. Eventually I was introduced to hustling, AKA selling drugs. And I found that I was kind of good at it. Good on a main street, lower level side of it. I, I found ways how to make money and, and how to keep money in my pocket. And that was something that kind of made you popular in the neighborhood as well. You knew how to sell drugs pretty good and, and you knew how to navigate through street life. You People looked at you as somebody that was worthy of attention and praise. In a way, in a part of a, uh, a kind of a underground, so to speak, economy, you were an entrepreneur. Definitely. You were making yourself successful. You gained respect from that. You also got money from that. Yeah, definitely. Although money wasn't my really big motivation, I was like, what I wanted the clout, as the kids say today. I wanted to be, I wanted to be known just in the organization as someone that can make a contribution. So, money wasn't. Although some people get in these organizations and that is their main motivation, it wasn't mine particularly. Mine was just like it was more like the bro a brotherhood and, and camaraderie, and I wanted to. I wanted. I actually at one point thought that I could get in and fix all of the the things wrong with the organization. And I, I, I studied the leaders of the organization, and I imagined myself one day being a leader, and I said, "This is what I would do different, and that's what I would do differently." And I used to sit on the curves. Eventually, when they did start, when I get by the time I got thirteen and fourteen. It was in the middle of a crack epidemic. So my whole world, that kind of really like changed my viewpoint of the organization, leadership, and everything. As you can imagine, or probably heard, crack just changed these communities in, in many ways. So all of the leaders that, that had that charisma, that had that money, about, I would say 50% of them succumbed to their, that crack epidemic. They start using or they got locked up for long periods of time. And that had a profound effect on my life and the trajectory that I, it caused me to kind of like take off like a rocket in, in terms of rising in the ranks of the organization that in which I was not ready for. I caught a case when I was 13 years old, uh, stayed in juvenile for about nine months. And within that short period of time, I came home and my whole neighborhood had transferred, uh, transformed. A lot of the guys I was looking up to were on, on, on drugs, on crack, and they acted like it. They were, <laughs> they had, they didn't have the money that they used to have. They didn't have the respect that they used to have, and the spotlight kind of got on me to kind of, you know, fill that void, um, especially for a new generation of young gang members that were coming in at the age of fourteen and fifteen. I was kind of like the person because I was groomed by these older gentlemen before they got on drugs to kind of like lead the way now, you know, into to the new era of the organization and how we would survive. And so at the age of 15, I had about 25 or 30 guys that were looking up to me in some sort of informal way. And that was kind of like my introduction into gang leadership. And we all we all had like a hierarchy in the gang, but we knew that these guys that were on drugs was on borrowed time. And so people kind of behind closed doors listened to me, but we had to listen to these guys, if, if, if that makes sense. I have a, a quick question. So at the age of 13, you in juvenile detention, like what do you think could have changed sort of like the outcome uh, in your life? Like if you could go back now, because I'm just wondering, like at the age of 13, how didn't someone see or take time out to invest in you to say like, this guy is, is a special guy. He's a leader. Like, how can I change or help change the trajectory of his life? Wow, that's a hard question for me because I was very crafty at living a dual lifestyle. I was exposed to a lot of program and I remember going to a place called the Oneida Baptist Institute in Oneida, Kentucky, where it was like a boarding school, if you will, that for kind of troubled youth, but also for some previous youth around the country in which parents just wanted to send people there to get an education. 
But I also went to a place in Brush, Colorado that was for violent offenders and things of that nature when I was a juvenile. So I was exposed to programming. So somebody early on, I believe it was somebody at Northwestern early on kind of like took my case and, and tried to expose me to these programs. And I can't honestly say like the violent offender program, it actually did stick with me. Those groups did stick with me. It was probably the aftercare that was supposed to happen after that violent offender program that probably would have made the most impact. Because after that program, I did so well. They released me early. I paroled to my uncle's house in, in North Carolina, and it was no follow up. It was no. It was no reentry plan. It was just like let's teach them a bunch of skills, and then release them and hope that they would use those skills. So. To answer your question more succinctly, I think that an aftercare plan and when I was exposed and recognized that, that I needed these programs would have really done, done me some good because one of the things that they did decide is that I needed to be relocated. I needed, now that I had all of these things, that these skills that they taught me, they said, hey, you shouldn't go back to Chicago. They sent me to North Carolina. They found a family member who was in the military, sent me to North Carolina. He lived on the military base. That was one of the best experiences I ever had in my life. But because it was no aftercare, it was no follow-up, it was nobody I had to check in with and, and see how I was doing, I eventually made my way back to Chicago and got back, right back involved in street and criminal activity. You know, one of the things that you seem to be drawn to and I've seen it in, in my career, my former career as a federal prosecutor. I prosecuted a lot of people that were involved in street organizations, organized drug trafficking activity and other criminal activity. Some people say it's all about the money. And, is, and, and yet, most of the defendants I prosecuted were indigent and received appointed counsel. Now, that seemed odd to me when I was a young prosecutor. How do these people who have tens of thousand dollars go through their hands on a regular basis end up when they're arrested? They don't have enough money to hire their own lawyer. Well, I have a theory. I have a theory that most drug dealers that do sell drugs for a long time, they're almost equivalent as the people that use drugs. It eventually becomes an addiction. And the lifestyle choices that you make are similar to the ones that people make that do drugs. They don't care about money no more. They care about getting up at the thrill as the, th the high that you get and the dopamine that's released from bagging the drugs, from selling the drugs, from running a, a drug empire or a drug operation. Um, and so it's not about the money because... If, if it was just about money, you'll find ways to save money. You'll find ways to invest. You'll find other ways outside of selling drugs if you were just about money. Because if you got tens, if most mid-level drug dealers can make a probably $50,000 a week. Times that by 52 weeks, that's a lot of money. That's, most, that's more money than most people were making that had college degrees, right? And so wealthy, young, rich African-American men and during the crack epidemic and, and other times, they didn't have no skills to, to really, they didn't have any transferable skills at the time to go into something legit or to save money. They looked at money just as a means to an end. They spent it fast and made it fast. It's similarly to the way that someone does drugs. It's not, it does, after a while, it don't become about the money. It comes about the thrill that you get of doing something illegal running an empire, and things of that nature. So in other words, it's not about the money, it's about the juice, or as you say, the clout. Right. And I came to put a different label on that when you've used respect. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's a counterfeit form of respect in a sense, but respect is powerful motivator for people. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that unlike the so-called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, yes. where you start with food, shelter, clothing, et cetera, right. that respect is the most fundamental human motivator, especially for young men. And people are willing to die or kill to get respect. Right. That's why I never really bought into this notion of I had to sell drugs to feed my family. As someone that was for the, 
that that really experienced that lifestyle and came up in a community in which there were a lot of resources to kind of feed your family, if you will. A lot of these drug dealers wasn't just feeding their family. They were addicted to the game and they were addicted to selling drugs and they were doing more to harm their families than to feed their families. And so I never bought into that notion of I had to sell drugs to feed my family and put food on the table because if a lot of us, if we really cared about our families, we would have found alternative methods into which to feed our family. We'd have, we'd have made, even though there were, in some cases, men, uh, it wasn't a lot, we still would have done what was right because you think about the amount of time and the consequences of selling drugs, you'll think about that and you'll say, it's not worth it. Me taking away from 22 years of my family, I wasn't there for a lot of seeing my nieces and nephews grow up. My father died while I was in prison. A lot of my friends died. A lot of my friends that I had influence over passed away. And so it's a great amount of guilt associated with that. A lot of people I bought into the organization um, were harmed. And, and, and a lot of my family members that kind of like, I was like the glue of my family. They taken out of that, you know, I did more harm to my family. So I definitely don't buy into that. What if you had the ability to go back in time and change the environment in your community in such a way that the outcome in your life and the lives of other people who were in your group, your organization, would have turned out differently? What would you change? What would it take? I think investment in so things like education, also literacy, like like not just the traditional literacy that you might think of, like math, uh, math, reading, and English. I think literacy around like life insurance, uh, college investment, or taking a trade and things of that nature. You, um, none of my friends' college was paid for when we went to high school, or they didn't have a 529 bond or something like that. Imagine growing up in a community in which your parents are saying, hey, when you graduate high school, your college is already paid for, or we got some money saved up for you to start the business, or when you graduate high school, you're going to be running the family business or something like that. Those type of investments that I see in other communities kind of inspire kids to want to go to school. But when I was in high school, by the time we I got to 10th grade, my friends were saying, hey, what's the sense of going through this? Like, What I'm going to do when I graduate 12th grade, I might as well start hanging out on the corner and making money with the guys right now because no one is invested in my future. And so it's hard for a kid that's 12 or 13, year old, 13 years old to invest in their own future. It's up to the parents. It's up to, to society to give us something that we can look forward to. And oftentimes, if we don't have anything to look forward to, our actions kind of denote the route that we go. Well, it sounds to me like what you're saying is a matter of hope. Even if you risk going to prison, even if you risk getting killed, even everything else, if that's the only avenue that gives you hope to improve yourself, you're likely to choose the destructive path rather than the productive path. Yes, indeed. And the other thing I would say is, trauma-informed care. A lot of, I think a lot of black grandparents and parents that went through civil rights, that went through Jim Crow, they have a lot of trauma responses in the way that they raise their children. So the way that they raise their children were a direct result of how they grew up and, and things of that nature. And I'm not saying to say nothing about our elders, but a lot of those things caused a great detachment and a generational gap in the way that they could relate to these children a lot of the freedoms and things that that we had to enjoy a lot of our grandparents looked at us like wow i i never had an opportunity to do that they came from segregated schools or they came from jim crow and and, and um, civil rights were just really taking off and a lot of them looked at us like hey you guys uh should just be happy you know but we all have our own traumas that we haven't dealt with and mental health is one of those things that were ta was a taboo word or taboo words in our community. So if I could go back in time, I would love to like make mental health part of the culture that is cool. Just like the gang and hip hop culture became cool, 
I would love to make taking care of ourselves, mental health, our mental sovereignty being protected as well as our physical sovereignty. You know, so I, I would love that that to be a part of our culture if we could. And I think that would have made a great, great, really big difference. I'd like to learn more about your view of, of the role of trauma in the uh, dynamics of what you're describing in your life and the lives of people around you and your organization. Yeah, I think trauma is one of those things when you're exposed to it at an early age, whether it's through abuse, whether it's through societal, uh, whether it's racism, or whether it's just being exposure to high levels of violence. When I was 11 years old, I seen someone get killed in cold blood, and it desensitized me from that moment on, on violence. And after that, more violence, just the process in which I view violence desensitized me. But I was definitely traumatized. I think the way that um, a lot of our parents raised us contributed to that. You think about a, ch a young child that was beaten, for example, to, for disciplinary reasons. If that's the only way that he was taught behavior modification was to beat you, he would transfer that on to his friends. And so that's a le low level of violence that's in the child's mind because there is no real follow-up. Our parents and grandparents probably wasn't equipped with the language of mental health and counseling that when you do whoop a child to have something to supplement that. So we get whooped at a young age. We go to school and we're taught to transfer those skills. So when I get disenchanted, I'm going to mimic exactly what my parents did because I'm not going to even have the context to really explain what I, how I feel. So if somebody takes a toy, I'm going to hit them. And I'm going to do exactly what my parents have taught because our parents was taught uh, spare the route, spoil the child. So I'm going to do the same thing and transfer those skills. Now, imagine a community where you have easy access to guns. So the belt and switch is replaced by the gun. And so now any conflict that I have and I have easy access to guns, now you can see a pattern of gun violence. He made me mad. He stepped on my shoe. Instead of working it out in, in a conflict resolution manner, I'm going to shoot him. And it's easy to see how that happens in our community. That is really important. This connection of what you're talking about, if parents parent through using violence to solve problems, disciplinary problems, then that teaches a child that violence is a solution. And as you encounter other situations outside of the home that needs solving, you're right. It makes perfectly good sense that a child that was brought up that way would see violence as a solution in those contexts also, in school, out on the street, whatever, especially when there's other people that are doing the same thing in the community. So it's not only trauma, but it's being taught that violence is a solution. And don't forget about the subculture of violence just in our society, whether it's Terminator movies, whether it's urban tales or black exploitation movies. We're surrounded by violence where it's taught that, you know, street justice is cool. You know, going through things through the legal system is not. And so you think about hip hop and a lot of the elements that was um, that it first came out with with peace and harmony and all of these things and keeping things lyrical. And eventually it became more violent, more misogynistic and stuff like that. And that's the images that a lot of our youth were exposed to. And youth always there. It's a time in your life where everything you do is to be cool. So whether you wear the latest fashion or whether you play the latest music or or whatever it is, it's a time in your life where you adopt the culture that is cool. And so youth will adopt the culture of violence. They will adopt the culture of being in gangs and street and st criminal organizations because they think it's cool. One of the challenges for people like us is to change that culture, to make, give them options to show them that being a community leader that protects the community is cool. Being a father is cool. Not going to prison is cool. And that's one of the challenges of what I do today. And one of my main motivations is being a culture warrior and trying to change that narrative of what's cool. You know, one of the defendants that I prosecuted, I'll never forget this conversation. 
he was just a sharp young man. And at the time, I was a scoutmaster. And I was sitting there wishing, oh, man, I wish this guy had been in my scout troop. And we'd have been able to have maybe a different conversation. And I asked him, how did a guy like you end up sitting across the table from a guy like me as a prosecutor having a conversation like we're having? And he said, Mr. Risley, you've got to understand, every man I've ever looked up to in my life was a drug dealer. And so the role you're seeking to play, and I know Marlon is seeking to play right now as a positive role model, somebody that gets respect a different way, shows people, it gives them hope that maybe there is a different way, maybe there is a different path, because you've been down one path and didn't like it. And they can identify with that path. They can see, well, this guy followed the path. Yeah, but you know what? He didn't like where it led. And so he got on a different path. And look at him now. Well, he's somebody who's respected. Uh, Maybe there's something to this. I mean, that's a kind of intervention that you're involved in. You're both involved in. That to me, it seems to me, is absolutely necessary. Because in the absence of that, What other alternative do young men really see to get ahead in life? I'm a real example of why fair sentencing is needed. I didn't say I didn't need to go to prison, but I didn't need to spend 85 years of my life in prison to make a change. I never deny anybody's ability to change. It can be 10 years. It may take 15 years. But there needs to be in our justice system evaluation to really see and foster that change in individuals, especially individuals like myself. There are so many people in prison that probably will never get a chance to see the streets ever again or for a long period of time that have made that change. I understand there's a balance between paying your debt to society, but it's also you have to do righteous. You have to be righteous and righteous is doing what's for the better good. Would it be more better for them to be in prison wasting taxpayers' dollars than to be out here doing and being on the front lines with me and Marlon doing what we're doing? And you have some guys that have been locked up 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 30 years, that they would be better served getting out, being on the front lines and trying to correct some of the wrongs that they did on society other than just for some reason of just letting them rot in prison. And I think... If you're thinking about the greater good, it would make way more sense. It would be way more effective into being changing the culture of not just criminality, um, reentry, the justice system, housing. All of those things can be addressed if we look at the way that we sentence people and the way that we release them. You know, speaking as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, a career prosecutor, I don't think I was viewed as being soft on crime. I viewed myself as a crime fighter. But along the way, I came to realize that if you're going to be effective as a crime fighter, then you have to be addressing the root causes of crime or else you're not really accomplishing anything. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that our criminal justice system these days is, for the most part, built on a punishment paradigm. That somehow if you punish people enough, they will change their ways. They will learn their lesson. And so we send them to prison and use it as a form of punishment. When, in fact, for many of them, it's you're in a concentrated company of criminals and it becomes crime college. And they can come out more criminal than they went in. Not everybody, not you guys. But at the same time, is this really helping solve the problem, the crime problem that we're trying to address? And actually, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, in essence, if you have that attitude of we're going to punish them into being good, that's like a parent. That's exactly like the abusive parent you were talking about, except that instead of the rod, we're using prison as the rod, you know, teach them a lesson. And it doesn't lead to good outcomes for children or for adults, and especially emerging adults, those youthful offenders. We need to shift from that punishment paradigm to a problem-solving paradigm. And if you're thinking in terms of problem-solving, it's a whole different way of thinking. And one of the things you'd give up very quickly is this one-size-fits-all, truth-in-sentencing, determinant-sentencing system. And you would look at people when they're in prison 
especially when they're in prison for some period of time, like you both were, fairly quickly, your caseworkers were able to size up whether you fit into one category or a different category, whether you're somebody who ought to be on a track, fast track to get out and do something productive and law-abiding in your lives, or whether you're a hard case and, you know, you need more time. You would not be a safe bet to be released. And those are the sorts of threat assessment-driven factors that go into a indeterminate sentencing where you hold the key to the time when you get released. If you make those changes, and some of it's just age-related, you age out of some things, the brain matures, and you've learned lessons in life. If we had a system in which people could earn their way out, prove their way out, prove that they're worthy of being released, that they're not going to be a threat to the community, then why in the world, at huge taxpayer expense, would we keep them in prison any longer than that, to the point that we remove any hope? I mean, if, it, if it's not going to make any difference what you do in prison or what you make out of your life, you're still going to get out of prison at the same time, then why even try it? There's no incentive. So it seems to me we've got a system that is more like that abusive parent that you were talking about. Right. Using prison as the rod and that we need to take a more problem-solving approach and treat people as individuals and figure out what's going on here. If trauma was let, what led to this, then let's deal with the trauma. If it's drug addiction that led to this, then let's deal with the drug addiction. Let's solve the problem. Let's salvage this good human being and give them opportunities when they get out. And that's what you guys are all about right now. Yeah, I, I heard Marlon's story uh, several times and, and, and like inspired by that and how he made, how kind of the prison, the way it was built, he was in federal prison, I was in state prison. He had an opportunity to get mentored. He had an opportunity to get programming and things that without that, he probably wouldn't be where he is now. And similar to that, my story is the same way. I was exposed to a couple prison programs and a prison facility that kind of really gave me a uh, environment in which I could really focus on my release, would focus on what I wanted to do, but also gave me uh, a community of individuals that thought like me, that wanted the same thing, that learned their lesson. It wasn't guys that just were there on one or two years. I was around people that had been locked up 15 or 20 years, and they, they had made all of the right changes in their life to come home and be successful. And if it wasn't for going through those programs and being in that environment, I don't think I would be here. I, I made, even with the 85 years pending over my head, I kind of made a promise to myself and others that if I ever got out, that I was going to return to my community and try to help my community heal from some of the things I've done to it and some of the things that are ailing it as a result of systematic reasons or and other reasons. Well, you've talked about a couple of times about this 85 years business. Now, you ended up, you had a history behind you, but you ended up going to prison for a sentence that was for a long time, right? Sure. So at How the long? age of 19, the police came to me and, and they wanted me to cooperate with them. And they kind of realized like the old regime, they wasn't very, they wasn't really reliable. Uh, apparently what I learned was that police sometimes have high level drug dealers, gang members, something like that as confidential informants, things of that nature. You don't know this, but they give up their underlings for deals that they have with police. and In a heartbeat. Right. And so my first experience with that was one of my friends was murdered and they came to the hospital and snatched me up at the hospital and took me to the 111th police station. And they set me down and told me, hey, we know you the man over there now. Uh, we know it's going to be retaliation. We just want you, we want you to give us the names of the guys that did it because you was in the car. And they was trying to strike a deal with me saying, hey, we'll leave you alone. You'll stay out of prison. Every now and then we just need you to give up a couple guys. And and um, I didn't do it. And they told me that if I didn't, if I walked out that room, that I would probably not see the streets. It'd probably be within six months to a year that I'd be gone. 
and a year, almost a year and two months from that, I was thinking it was '95. Yeah, they made they made they made promise. They kept their promise, and I remember being in the black back of the police car on 76 and Racine. I was in this parking lot, and they had finally arrested us. It was four people on a case with us, and. He told me to get a good look around, look at everything, and they drove me around my whole neighborhood before they took me to the police station. He's like, because you'll probably never see these streets again. And they charged me with everything under the sun to make that come true. And so, Including murder. Including murder, accountability murder. So in other words, this is important, I think, for people to understand. You did not commit the murder that you were convicted of. Not only did I not commit it, they didn't never sentence anyone for committing the murder. They charged everyone with accountability under me. And so they still don't have a quote unquote shooter. They charged us with, they charged my co-defendants with battery of the person, but he was later found to be shot. And so they said if he hadn't got beat up and left there, then he wouldn't have never been shot. So we were accountable for some unknown person shooting him, somebody that hasn't been convicted of the murder. See, with accessory, you have to be, the other, the main person had to be charged with the crime and you are his accessory. With accountability, they don't need the main principal. It could just be proven that this person was shot and killed. And then uh, all of the factors around it, like if I drive someone to Marlon's house knowingly that his life can be in danger and something happened to him, he can be charged with accountability. Well, in any event, without knowing what the circumstances were, the legal theories in your particular case, I know that you ended up being sentenced for murder, a murder that you did not personally commit, but it was because it was as part of essentially a criminal enterprise and that you were a part of the criminal enterprise, namely the street organization, a.k.a. the gang. Yep. And so you went to prison at age, what, about 20? Yeah, 20 going on 21 and um, entering a maximum security prison at that young age and uh, around people that were never coming home, essentially. And it was kind of like the streets. It was kind of like being out there. People were selling drugs. People were doing all type of stuff in prison. I witnessed somebody on my second week in prison getting stabbed and killed in the shower and when I came, more trauma. Yeah, when I came to prison, we was on lockdown because somebody had just got stabbed and killed. Then, as soon as we came off lockdown, I went my first shower ever in prison. Somebody gets stabbed and killed in the shower. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, that was that was definitely more trauma to me. But remember, I said I was desensitized, but I had never seen no one killed in that brutal manner, having to watch him bleed out and, and things of that nature, and so. That was definitely something that I, prison in itself, without any violence, is a traumatic experience. Like being away from home, all the going through a lengthy trial, hearing the judge say guilty, then waiting a couple months later and getting all that time, and essentially have to accept that you're going to spend a uh, majority of your life was essentially a glorified bathroom, not even a glorified—that's the wrong word—in a stripped-down bathroom. Uh, that's kind of hard to accept within itself and add on all the other threats of death and seeing people get killed and all the other oppressive things that go with prison. It's, it's really was hard for me to accept. How did you do your time without like, like being bitter? I wouldn't say that I wasn't bitter. I, I think I was bitter for maybe a couple months, but support. I have to really give it to my team, my family, People that supported me that really said, hey, look, you could do this. You're not going to stay in prison the rest of your life. So essentially, shortly after I got in prison, I started acting as if I was going to get out very soon. I mean, just my attitude. I would wake up and just develop this attitude like, I'm going to be out. So I started planning for my release. Now, I didn't know I was going to be in social work and be in violence prevention. I actually thought I was going to be a, a really highly successful entrepreneur. So I started planning to just be get out. So I started educating myself. And one of the things about educating yourself is that 
you learn stuff about yourself. You learn like what you're good at, what your weaknesses are. And I made a promise that I would kind of correct a lot of the weaknesses about me. And eventually I started taking psychology, learning about, you know, my own thoughts and behaviors and, and the patterns and things of that nature. So it, I spent a lot of my time working on myself and educating myself, which took up a, a lot of time. And so I didn't have time to be depressed because I had a term paper to turn in. I didn't have time to be depressed because I had people writing me all the time and, and, and corresponding with me. And of course, after a while, you locked up 10, 15 years, people kind of forget about you. Um, but that's when those programs and the community in which I was in um, by being transferred to the those prisons that allowed you to be out your cell most of the day and interact with other inmates that were going to school and that were looking forward to getting out and things of that nature, as opposed to people that had double natural lives or that was on death row or something like that and didn't really have nothing to look forward to. That environment and those programs really helped me. What kind of programs were available for education? We had bachelor's programs from Roosevelt. We had associate's degrees. We had certifications anywhere from automotive to almost everything you can think of to improve yourself. We had father um, programs. We had uh, almost every social science program you can think of. We had horticulture, cosmetology, barber college. It was just depending on where you were at, they had different programs. But something happened like in the early 2000s where people were making complaints about us getting better education than the people in the street. We, we qualified for grants and they took all of those grants away that allowed the colleges to come in to teach us. And I think that was a really big mistake. I think around that time, the recidivism rate really increased. A lot of the hope that was once in prisons kind of disappeared. And it changed the culture of prison. Even when I got out four years ago, they were just trying to catch up for something they did over 10 years ago. They were they had realized that they made a mistake by taking all of these programs out of the prisons. It was, like you said, a form of punishment. The IDOC got a couple bad reviews around the Richard Speck tape and some other things, and they came right in. The thing they was doing, oh, we're going to shut the prison down, no more programs, we're just going to lock everybody up 23 and 1 or 18 and 6 or 20 and, 20 and 4, so their response was the same response that society had. It is my view that corrections don't supposed to act like mimic society in punishing, right? We already get punished when we get sentenced, but IDOC decided they wanted to punish the inmates for them getting all of this bad press about what was going on in the prisons. And instead of improving some of those programs, they took everything away from the prisons. And and on top of that, they did little small things that to try to like take your individuality away. Like we used to wear our own clothes and gym shoes. That made you feel like an individual in prison. So by giving everybody the same uniform, it kind of made you feel kind of imagine kind of like, you know, like it kind of made you feel like a slave in a sense. It kind of just made you feel less than a person by taking your individuality. They took a lot of our property that made us feel connected to the streets. And a lot of restrictions were put on place. And so it didn't really feel like it was a place where you can be rehabilitated, that facilitated correction in your behavior. It just felt like lock them up, throw away the key, and release them whenever his time is up. You know, one of the things that you've talked about is hope and trauma and these sorts of things. If you take away hope, then that seems to me hope is the antidote to the effects of trauma, the effects of addiction, these things that lead people to get to prison in the first place. And so if you take away hope, then you're not really solving the problem that led people to go to prison. And it's not setting the stage for a good outcome when they get out of prison. Definitely. Especially if the trauma of prison itself has in, just increased the trauma that led them to go to people to go to prison in the first place. Definitely. In another episode, I talk about a process called violentization, which is a progressive. It's almost like uh, trauma is the carrier of the disease of violence. 
So if you increase the trauma, you increase the disease. You're not helping solve it. And hope is the antidote to all this, it seems to me. Think about the analogy that I gave you about the young child that was in school. And by the time he get to high school and he had to make that decision, if he want to continue to go on to graduate or do he want to use his hopelessness as an excuse to drop out and, and get on the block? The same mentality is had of most prisoners that's getting ready to get out of prison. If there is nothing that he can look forward to, a program or, or a system that, that facilitates his change when he get out, then, of course, there will be some hopelessness involved in his rehabilitation and his reentry to society. So if it's nobody saying, hey, when you get out, we there for you. We can hook you up with these resources. We can contact you before you come home and, and pat you on the back, say, yeah, we know you made a mistake. We hope you change. And, and, and here is what you can do to get reintegrated back into society. We got your back. You've paid your price for being doing whatever it is. Let us let us get at you now. We've got something to make you equal back into society. Absent of that, a lot of people looking at prison is, well, when I get out, ain't nothing out there for me. I can't get a job. It's way more obstacles than it was before he went to prison than when he got out. So some of the same factors that caused him to become a criminal in the first place will is, is doubled or tripled and barriers are there getting out of prison. So you think about if I didn't have no criminal record before I went to prison and I, I struggled with trauma, I struggled with hopelessness. Now, couple that with a criminal, a felony conviction, the stigma of being in prison and all of the things that I'll be lacking in, such as skills and technological skills and all of that, and I have to get out. The trauma hasn't been addressed. Some of the social barriers haven't been addressed. The hopelessness hasn't been addressed. Now you want me to just get out in society and reintegrate and become this perfect citizen, you know? And it's kind of difficult. I can't get I can't get public housing. I can I can get in, hardly get any public assistance. I can't live in the community in which I came from because maybe my my parents or my family members live in public housing. So thinking about this, I relate that to the child that says. When I graduate from high school, what is there for me? Nobody set up nothing for me to get a job. Nobody set up nothing for me to get a trade. Nobody set up anything for me to do anything. Nobody invested in me, you know. And so you have some isolated incidents where a military recruiter come in and say, hey, we'll get you in the military. But is that more for me or them? You know, you don't really get a sense that they're investing in you. It's like, hey, sign up with us and we'll do this for you and you're going to do this. You're going to risk your life for us. You know what I'm saying? So it's no entrepreneurs. It's no Googlers, no Microsoft. It's nobody coming to those high schools saying, hey, look, let us train you on some stuff. And when you graduate, we'll hire you. Imagine if that happened. Imagine if that something similar happened in prison where people were going into the prisons and saying, hey, when you pay your debt to society, we're going to be right here, not only to open our doors with you, we're going to give you some training before you get out of prison. We're going to have a conversation with you before you get out of prison, see what your interests are. As a matter of fact, let's address some of that trauma before you get out of prison. Let's send some counselors in here. Let's let's get you involved in some programs to address some of that trauma so you can have uh, employable skills when you get out. You know, if there's anybody listening here who is thinking of themselves as a crime fighter, they better be listening to what you're talking about because there's a lot that goes in the guise of being tough on crime and fighting crime that really is creating crime. It's creating the problem. It solves nothing and ends up creating the very problem that it's supposed to be solving. So if you're going to be effective in fighting crime, you're going to have to be effective in doing the various things, addressing the various things you've just talked about. Which brings us to the subject, well, before we get to the subject of reentry, I want to be clear. What was your original sentence? 85 years. You're not 95 years old now. Right. So, so uh, you obviously got out earlier. Yeah, I got. I, I want to appeal for one of the charges of murder um, in which, you know, they, they threw out. Since they threw that out, they kind of cut it down to 45 years. And then I had already did 22 years. And so... 
in Illinois, under the old law, you did 50% of your time uh, with good time, and you were able to get out early. So I was able to be time-considered serve on my on my case for the one that was the remainder, and that's the one I'm still fighting to this day. Okay, so you got out and you experienced what we've been talking about, reentry back yeah. into community and family life. Tell us about that. So it started prior to me getting out. So in Illinois, when you get a certain amount of time short of your release date, some people come talk to you, people you've never seen before, people in uh, or, uh, departments called field services and stuff like that. They come just asking general questions about where you're paroling to, things of that nature. Do you have a house to go to? Are you homeless? And so they're they're trying to make a parole plan for you. And that could be kind of stressful too. If you don't find a place to actually accept you, you can't get out. So you have to find a place where there's no public housing. If you're a sex offender, you can't those are different rules. And if you are a high-level gang member and they say, hey, you can't go back to the community in which you committed your crime in, all those barriers are put up. Uh, somebody got a pit bull in their house or anything. So you develop in about 90 days, 60 to 90 days short of your sentence, a parole plan. And that parole plan varies on the facility in which you are going to be paroling from. Even though in Illinois right now, currently, they're trying to change that around and create some specific facilities that focus surely on reentry and skill building. At the time of my release, those facilities didn't really exist. And so I'm happy to be a part of some of those conversations right now as as as, as part of the reentry coordinator and being on a reentry uh, council in Illinois. So my reentry to society looked similar to what I was saying. Just a plan. I had to find an apartment to go to, a place to go to. And they give you $50 uh, upon getting out. Matter of fact, they only gave me 10 because it used to be 50, but they, because of budget uh, woes in Illinois, they broke it down to 10. They pay for a ticket, a bus ticket or a train ticket. If you have more than $50 on your books or $100 on your books, they will take that money out of your books to buy your ticket. Now it was a free ticket in the prison, but you have to pay for your ticket to get out. That's kind of <laughs> odd, you know, to me, right? Like they didn't, they didn't be like, hey, look, we need money to send you to prison. But on your way out of prison, I found it odd that if you had money on your books, they would take the money off your books to purchase your bus ticket or whatever ticket to get home. Like, did you have an ID? No, I did not have an ID upon my release. It would they they made it kind of easy for me to get ID by giving me some release papers that I could take to the um, Secretary of State office to use uh, for my ID. And I did have a Social Security card that I sent off for. You ended up being in the reentry coordinator for Ready Chicago. Why don't you tell the people who don't really know what Ready Chicago is what that is? Ready Chicago stands for Rapid Employment and Development Initiative. It is a violence prevention organization that started as a result of the rise in crime in 2017, where you had some stakeholders coming to say, hey, we think uh, the answer is to give employment, employment skills and employment to these guys in these um, communities. And then uh, some other stakeholders saying, no, we need to give them cognitive behavior therapy and them marrying the both of those ideas together to say, cognitive behavior therapy, and employment development skills to the highest risk of individuals, uh, highest risk of gun violence to individuals. So perpetrators and victims of gun violence were the targets of Ready Chicago when it started. And um, Ready Chicago was first started off under a control group. Uh, so we wanted to say the people that we are servicing, comparing them to people that wasn't getting serviced. And I started off as an outreach worker in Ready Chicago. So Ready Chicago part, um, partners with Heartland Alliance, and each one of the components have partners. So Ready Chicago have outreach partners to kind of make that first contact with the participants in the program and bring them into the program and then give kind of expose them to the 
the transitional job experience and the cognitive behavior therapy experience. So my first my first job was an outreach worker, which I was an outreach worker for three and a half years. You'll probably be glad to hear that our the next scheduled interview that we have or conversation that we have is going to be with Eddie Bocanegra, oh, who is my boss, <laughs> your boss who manages Ready Chicago. So we'll look forward. I look forward. To, I met him while I was still working in the governor's office as director of public safety policy, and he told me his story. And I thought then, this, in fact, I told him, this is a story that needs to be told. And that was part of what led to, after I left the governor's office, creating Justice Voices, so we could hear stories such as you've shared with us. Do you have any final thoughts, any message that you'd like to share? Yeah, I know we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about Fully Free today, but I just want to mention that during my time out, I ran into so many people that was doing this work that was formerly justice involved and they wasn't fully free. They didn't they couldn't get certain certifications. They had people that were outreach workers that were risking their lives trying to mediate conflicts in our communities and make our communities a safe safer place, but they couldn't get a house. They couldn't they couldn't get an apartment in a safe community because they were being denied because they were convicted felons. And so those are the type of examples and why I I really wanted to be a part of the the fully free campaign because I think it's one thing to say let's let's set up something to to make a reentry kind of comfortable and look good on the way out. But then those underlining barriers that even people like myself that have found success in getting out I still struggle with being pulled over and having to be on this violent offender registry or murder offender registry. And I can I risk going to jail every day I come out if I get pulled over by the police. So, for example, I don't have the same rights as you. The police told me that they can pull me over and they run my license plates. And, and because I'm on the registry, they can search my car, pull me out of the car for whatever reason they want. It don't even have to be a reason. They can just do it off GP. So... That means that I'm still under some type of constraint after I spent 22 years in prison, served my time, serving my community, trying to do what's right. They can still treat me like I'm a criminal or violate my rights in some type of way. And so this is one of the reasons that I wake up every day and I'm really passionate about the work that I do and the contributions that I make to campaigns like Fully Free. Well, we appreciate that. You're now a board member of Fully Free and Marlon, you managed the Fully Free campaign. Any final words from you? I would say what reality said. After a person completes their sentence, that person should be fully free and should be able to participate in society as a, as a free citizen. Well, as I've said before, when Marlon, you and I talk, if you expect people to go straight when they get out of prison, but there's barriers in the way, don't be surprised if they circle back and end up where they started and back into prison and you got a cycle. The only way to break the cycle is to remove barriers so they can move forward. Well, thank you. Reality, we really appreciate you sharing your story, and we hope that through the Justice Voices and people listening to Justice Voices and spreading the word about Justice Voices, your voice is heard. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.